0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Giants podcast with myself. Why does he do with that Deacon. voice? I
1: don't know. He's <laughs> <have to get> saying
2: <laughs> to start again now, <laughs> <laughs> no. no, I'm not going to start
0: again. I'm leave it in. I'm not getting abused like that about leaving it in. I want people to know.
1: He's from Ireland, really. He's
0: here. I don't I don't have relatives in Ireland. Anyway, <laughs> my name's Cameron Deacon. Now I'm unhappy. And we're joined once again by Mr. Tim Person. Hello. And we're joined once again three years later. Uh, by Andy Kelly last time Hello. it was just head of youth but now it's
1: also rugby manager just there's no, there's no just he, just he head of youth head
0: of youth
2: um,
0: it's already yeah. not you
1: COVID down Covid manager
2: hasn't. yeah football manager 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 manager,
0: manager. <laughs> <laughs> well it, it's funny because I, I, I've just listened back to the podcast I did three years ago and I wanted to try and find some, some quotes to stitch you up with um, you, you're still waiting for your MBE OBE Yes, still waiting for that.:
2: yet? I actually think uh, I'm of the belief that somebody actually was writing one up this year and they just submitted it too late. It's, they forgot
0: about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other one was, I don't wear expensive earrings. i I' stopped
2: wearing them. Sunday's only now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you said you would never get back into first team coaching. Does that still sound true? yeah
2: 100 percent. 100 percent. It's not something that you know, is on my horizon or my, in my thoughts. So what is
0: uh, a rugby manager then?
2: Pretty much I look after all, it's an extended version of the um, Academy Head of Youth, I guess. It's it, it, it's taking care of all the logistics for all the teams, so making sure that things run on time, things are booked on time, that the buses are where they need to be, the players get to where they need to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the day to day general taking care of everything that probably the coach doesn't have to do and shouldn't have to do
0: and and you sort of took over that role it was just towards the back end of 2019 and obviously things went a little bit downhill since then so it's not been are you saying that I actually took the club downhill I sort of mean in general uh, you know we had a bit of a Shut down yeah. on various occasions, yeah. which can't have been easy for yourself, especially when your job sounds so literally logistical. I
1: think Andy's the only person in this club that didn't really have a shutdown, aren't you?
2: No, I stayed on. I think you're uh, the only
1: uh, person, I think, and Connor, perhaps the only two people. Yeah,
2: like. at the point where everybody was a stay at home and work from home, then I was still here, so yeah. Because what was added very quickly to my title was Covid manager, so I became Covid manager. And <laughs> I know about as much as, about COVID as most people, mm-hmm. but then obviously you've got the additional learning and understanding to take forward so that you're protecting the game and the players from what followed.
0: Yeah, it, it, I just can't imagine taking on a new role that sounds so incredibly involved in the day-to-day runnings of clubs, then have the club basically stop around you.
2: Yeah, the club didn't, you know, so again, I guess the reality in that the club didn't stop, the club Mm -hmm. was still going forward, we were still trying to organise how we would resume training, at what point we would resume training, I was walking around putting Walk This Way stickers on, (laughs) and uh, the like, so we were making sure that... When the players came back in, that the the pod that had to be created, the cocoon that they would work in was was in place. So I, I all of a sudden I became, you know, the, the the guy who was in charge of fumigation and uh, make sure that things were cleaned and and done properly, ready for players to return.
0: And one of the other things that we know was affected very heavily from the previous couple of podcasts that we've done is the, the youth side of things, which is still very much involved. in. it must have been hard knowing because that lot that did come to a grinding halt
2: the the sad side of the the whole Covid outbreak was the academy and scholarship and their development it's such a key period for players when they've earned the right to come into scholarship uh, they're they're into the second year of scholarship where they're trying to find the way forward into the professional game and then obviously the new academy players who, who missed out a year of development so I can remember, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be detrimental to players. And I was stood with uh, Adam in our conditioner, and we played Saint Helens away in one of the, the earlier games, after the the resurrection of the fixtures uh, with the academy and scholarship. And we we spoke to our counterparts at Saint Helens, and I'd not seen a game at that level between Saint Helens and Giants that lacked cohesion and quality. But you, you couldn't have expected the players to bridge a one year gap. Hmm. Almost immediately, and, and hit back at the levels that we'd seen before we had the break. So, it, it had a massive effect on the development of young players. That that twelve, fifteen month period out at that age.
0: Does that basically then change your job when it does return? Where you're sort of you're planning instead of how to sort of. Continue their growth. You're having to sort
2: of restart it. Yeah, yeah. It changed everybody's jobs, even at the first team level. It changed the job of how you actually restart. You can't go back in at the level you were. So yeah, I can't give you the the periodized periods that we were in at, at, on that at that time. But even the first team couldn't come back in at the same level. They had to almost go into a, a beginnings of pre-season phase again, and we saw lots of soft tissue injuries at that level and then for the academy and scholarship players, what you got from that then was, you had to pick up the development, so you got lads who were going into the second year of their academy but you had to go re, sort of rewind them a little bit and still treat them as first year academy players it was, a, it was difficult and some of our coaching and uh, strength and conditioning staff were, were brilliant in the way that they understood that and took things, stripped things back
1: uh, I'd like to go uh, a bit further back to obviously the start of the pandemic, because what a lot of our listeners and what a lot of the supporters of the club won't understand is how difficult it was at the time for the club to to keep going and to survive, and and what staff and players had to go through to actually get a game on at the end of the day. When COVID hit, obviously we we did have a, a very small pause in playing. I think you know we started again. approximately June didn't we Mm -hmm. can you just talk us through sort of your experience of the club shutting down to restart and again to all the difficulties I know that's a big process but to be able to understand that for the fans I think it'd be a a really good thing for them to hear really
2: yeah it's it's hard to it's hard even to go back and remember all the things that we did but Mm. initially obviously the whole country the whole the, the, near enough the whole world was put on shutdown. Mm-hmm. Such was the the rapid uh, rise of the the pandemic status in in all countries. Um, so really, the first the first period was get rid of everybody, sit them at home, keep the ones that you want to keep coming in. Me, uh, and then it was cleansing. <laughs> you know, yeah. I can remember all the staff the day we shut down. All the staff came in and cleaned, and we and we we scrubbed and we cleaned every. Um, Item that was in the the GTC the Giants Training Center weights mats sinks toilets, the marigolds were on the loo brushes were out the bleach was out, but then we we went through a period there where then everybody was stopped so that little group of staff were no longer coming in it was just me um, going round just basically f- with to buy. Learning about the chemicals that you need and what Mm. chemicals you can use and what chemicals you can't use, what's rapid drying, what sits on equipment for days and is still effective. We bought fumigators and steamers and, you know, so all of a sudden you're in a learning phase to actually what do we need to do to get the players back in. Then I was, you know, uh, Big Dog were actually very helpful at the time. Graham uh, Stocks was came over and helped me with all the signage, we would to create our own signage, we had to create um, um, a testing station. So the players, which you, you were asking me about, and we'll we'll go to, but it was really creating the environment with a one-way system, with the way of, the players weren't allowed to park forward. They were allowed to reverse into parking spots. You could only park in every alternate space. The two meter distancing was in place. We had a one-way system within a, a building that really didn't lend to it, but we, we found a way to make <laughs> it work. And then we, we... I mean, even the purchase of gazebos for a testing station, so we set our own testing stations up. They were, testing,
1: they were, they were training in pods, weren't they? They all allowed yeah. to train in pods. And we went up to Stars Hall. I can remember. Yeah,
2: we went up to Stars Hall, so yeah. you, you trained in groups of six, and that's really... If, if one person gets it, then it's only six people. Whereas if you do that crossover... Uh, uh, training where everybody trains with everybody then if one gets it you all get all it get so it, yeah. again you you were trying to protect your environment with with the, the smaller groups
1: and not to put the players down but that it's really difficult to manage such a big group of people to not interact to go without Sounding like an head teacher going, You sit down, you go there you know it was it's really
2: quite hard isn't it had it? to be a little bit like that at times. Yeah. you did have to be a little bit um, you had to dictate to them what they could and they couldn 't do and again, within an environment where you 've got say thirty six players coming in they don 't they don 't all have the same beliefs and philosophies, so mm. you 're trying to get people to comply just because they have to comply, not because they, they believe that they should mm. so it was really about. A lot, myself, uh, Pat Robertson, Danny Glover, who was the Doctor then, now replaced by Ian Sampson, a lot of it was being very transparent in what we were trying to do and sending out as much information in advance to players creating your own operational documents that were just covid specific Mm. and then having the players now what percentage of that they read we don't know but if they read any of it it would help our job so
1: and then it was and then it was really weird i mean i mean i didn't sort of come back in um i I remember the first behind closed doors i came to was here in, in the august I think and uh, just to, just those games were just weird and eerie and I know that fans saw them on telly but there was background noise on it it was just a really weird environment wasn't it
2: Yeah yeah it's really surreal it was it was very abstract it didn't it didn't feel like the game that you you knew and it wasn't the game that you knew because yeah. obviously it's a it's a parochial game. It's fervent. It's the supporters are as much part of your team as as the team are. And yeah. without those in the ground, and you got you know, I've never been a big fan of canned laughter and canned applause. I and mean, I guess, Tim, some of your jokes in the old comedian days would have only been met by canned laughter. Um, <laughs> Didn't even get any of that. So the environments were different. You played at central venues, so you'd have you know over a, every weekend was like a magic weekend without a crowd. So mm. you'd have seven games at one venue or yeah. six games at one venue, and mm. one side of being improvised dressing room areas, another side of being the actual established dressing room areas. You had to split your teams down, so you couldn't get thirteen players in one dressing room, let alone mm. seventeen and all the entourage mm. that goes with it. So life became very different. And my job, the most important part of my job through the playing days uh, was to make sure that it felt seamless. Yeah. So my job was to make sure that once the player went through the changing room door, it felt like a game day mm. uh, and that the restrictions that were in place were so um, well managed that the players didn't feel like it was they were being herded into a pen and out of a
0: pen. It's interesting that you brought it up, actually, because I hadn't thought about it before. But the, the one game I got to was behind closed doors when we played at Warrington. What I noticed there was the, even though there was no crowd, it was still incredibly loud in the ground because the you don't realise how much the players are talking to yeah. each other. I guess during a game because you, you've got people sat next to you, you've got cowbells going off. Yeah, you yeah, know, it's. Uh, how do you think, from a player's perspective, it was to sort of have to? put up with that having no crowd and suddenly being able to hear everything because I imagine sometimes it might actually be harder
2: the players hated it the players hated that no they they're professional players as much for a living and the recompense but they're there as much for the adulation and the the fervent support they get and, and I say that even on your bad days you've got mm. to appreciate your support so the players missed that that was a big factor if, if you I reckon if you asked the player what did you miss most they'd say the crowd Mm. For definite, and uh, I think they hated that period of time where there was no atmosphere in the grounds, and the very fact that the TV company tried to reproduce in-ground sound told you how important it was to the game.
1: Not just in-ground sound; we had those cardboard, those cardboard cutouts. Yeah, yeah. The cardboard cutouts sat in the stand. Yeah, period of COVID. yeah. Well, yeah. You, you kind of blank it out of your mind. Isn't it? it was a really tough period, and. I know that sort of it. you know when I came back in and then we started to get fans back in and socially distancing I found that all really hard we're still operating a red zone now we're not totally back to normal we're getting that way and it's starting to feel a bit more positive again but it must have been really difficult for you throughout that period did it? Did you lose the love did you ever start because cause I just saw you as being totally rushed off your feet um, working every day you know sort of to, to make it happen, just to get it on. And there must have been points where you just thought, do you know what, I've had enough of this. I didn't. No. I know.
2: My love for the game is so strong. Yeah. And, and I felt like I were protecting the game. I yeah. was trying to protect the game for the players that play now and the supporters that follow the game now and the people that, that came after. So we've alluded to the academy and scholarship players. You want the game to be there for them. Mm. So... Yeah were well, the times when I went home and felt like I'd had enough yeah of course <laughs> was. but every new day was a new challenge Yeah. And I can remember you know again you sit in the cold corridors I remember the first time we did the red zone I think we got Leeds Rhinos here for a pre-season game mm. and uh, it was freezing at the corner of the stand and I was like oh this is my life now so I sat on a chair in the outdoors temperature checking players as they come in and, yeah. and checking their accreditations and so my game days changed, I were I had to be there three hours before kick-off and yeah. set up a, a testing station and have testing kits with Steve Hardesty, um, he would be our reserve tester, so if anybody, a match official or a player turned up and hadn't been tested, we, we had to do the testing there and then.
1: I was. I mean, it was really strict as well, wasn't it? You know, there, Very strict. There, there wasn't anybody that was allowed in that wasn't on the red list. And for for any listeners, the red list was basically a list of all players and coaching staff, all match officials that were allowed in the stadium. And If your name wasn't on that list, you weren't getting in, were you? No,
2: not at all. And and if you turned up, then we we had to have processes uh, processes in place to make sure that if you did, if you were so, a tie, if a timekeeper turned up, or a couple of times where the referees with their their uh, the guy who looks after their communication system he might come into it where he's just Joe Normal who understands how a radio works and he turns up and he has been tested so you've got to make sure that You don't just let him walk through. You've got to actually go, have you been tested? Have you been temperature checked? Mm. So every player had to be temperature checked on entry to the ground. If the temperature was above 37.8, then they weren't allowed to come in. They had to go and sit. So you imagine Tony Smith turns up with the whole KR team and you tell him that... You know, one of these key players is not coming in the ground because his temperatures is too is too high, and he's going to sit there for twenty minutes. <laughs> you know so you've got all that kind of all those scenarios, and again, you've got to make that understood and comfortable, so that. You know the coaching staff, the medical staff from both sides understand. So you're sending, you've seen the documents. Yeah, we're sending massive documents out to teams. This is our procedure, and if this happens, if this happens, if this happens. I remember
1: sitting down with him, working on that pre-game plan that we used to have to send out before every game, and it, it was just bonkers. Really, it was like. Surreal, as you say, well, I mean, the reason I asked you know about did it did it kill you the love of the game because I want to move on to something more positive and um, you know we've we 've spoken to you before on the podcast and and a lot of of us know that you know you 're Andy Kelly that um, has been here for uh, a good few years now and, and helped us you know sort of improve our academy uh, and scholarship setting and you've coached Ireland all those sorts of things but where did your love of the game begin how, how did you start playing rugby what you know what was what was the whole story of young Andy Kelly about
2: I think my love of the game started being born into a big Catholic family in yeah. a council house on Lupsit <laughs> where we we lived on uh, one of the crossroads so our house actually had gardens on three sides. It never looked like a garden when we were young. So our rugby pitch, there were six of us in the family, four boys and two girls, and they could all play. We could all play with three aside. you could always get a game. So we started in the garden three on three. But yeah. Perfect
0: it's like scrum. Well,
2: and I always played from the front to the back, which meant when I took into my professional game, I was always good off my left foot Um, you know, I could step from right to left because yeah. I had to turn a 90 degree corner <laughs> to play the middle <laughs> section of the field and then to go into a fence as we call it now, yeah. I had to do another right to left step and then I'd be facing the back fence and uh, that was the try line We and we played, that's where we started you know, I had an older brother, Paul he played at school, so when I went to English Martyrs school um, as a year as a a year younger, so the top age played. I played a year up, uh, and that's that's basically where it all started. And it, it it went from there. It was a game that I took to. It was a game that I liked. I loved the physical nature of it. I loved how involved you could be. But I was big for my age, you know. Uh, I think I was born on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. You know, i know, like I was a big baby. I was, I was something like eleven stone, eleven pound, twelve at birth, and that me? yeah, that I t- was troffing sandwiches at three months. <laughs> uh, people came from next door and the door after. When, when's Andrew eating? You know, and they come and watch me eat sandwiches at whatever age because my mum come film me. Buying a Webster's in your yeah, bottle. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't say publicly that my mum gave me Webster's. But, <laughs> yeah. um, so that's where it started. And then I played through school, we went to Thomas Becket School, where we had a great rugby league and sports programme. And, and from there, I played a little bit at Eastmore as a junior, but then went into the Wakefield system. Now, there was no academy, real academy process then. There was no like scholarship leading. So we played for a team that was called the Supporters Club. But you played against other supporters clubs. So you play um, Castleford Supporters Club, you play at Fryston. It's the only place I've ever gone where, when the game got called off for bad weather, I cheered. <laughs> you know, it, was a, it was a tough place to go for Fryston in them days, and probably still is to this day. And not um, due to the weather? Oh, no, no. <laughs> um, but you played against the other team's supporters clubs, and all the supporters clubs were effectively a junior academy, and then academies then were under-19s. Um
1: so, were you still playing for Eastmore all the way through that, or did you just purely commit to the Supporters Club?
2: I played for Eastmore as well. So, yeah. you know, there's a couple of players who went on to play for Wakefield alongside me, uh, John Thompson being one of the key ones from Eastmore. And um, yeah, we played for their junior side and we played open age. I can remember going on a bus to Barra or Cumbria with the open age team just because we were the biggest lads in the under 17s. Yeah. And them sat on the bus with whatever they got up to at the, that age and saying, don't you worry about it, you'll just play, we'll sort them out, and you just knew that meant there were going to be a big stink <laughs> when you're on field.
1: And, Did but, you stop off at a prison on the way? Every time I talk about it, somebody playing open-age rugby, they always say... In the 70s and the 80s, or we had to stop off at Armley, or we had to stop off at HMP Wakefield to I, pick somebody up. We never actually stopped
2: at a prison, <laughs> but I remember it, in the Wakefield, um early years at Wakefield, and when I went to Hulkingston Rovers, a couple of times in the reserve team, we had players with tags and prison wardens attached, which makes it hard to catch the ball when you're handcuffed to <laughs> yeah. somebody, you know. Um but, yeah, in both those teams, at that time we had uh, different people who were on release. I can remember the... I won't name him, but he went on to play professionally when he came out of prison. But I can remember him coming from Hull Prison with the two wardens and the t- he'd get to the back of the dressing room door and they'd take the handcuffs off and he'd go in and get changed. But after the game, we used to have, like, a, a tray of half-pint cans in, uh, of lager in the dressing room and you've never seen a bloke demolish 24 <laughs> half pint cans like him because he knew he wouldn't get another can of beer until he played again Yeah, so yeah. he always left the dressing room in a in a fairly merry state <laughs> so everybody you know you can have mine you can have mine yeah. And, but yeah there were interesting times obviously it could never happen now no. but in those days yeah we had players who came from the prison and played reserve team and first team
1: so um, when did you make your debut as a sort of a full you know full time professional my first
2: game was in 1979 and I played in the BBC2 Floodlit Trophy um, and that was at Castleford and I was on the bench and it was one of those games where you know you is for Wakefield say, yeah that was yeah. for Wakefield Trinity so yeah. I signed for my hometown club at, um, That um w- I signed for my hometown club in January 78 which I was at 17 years of age That 17 was the trigger point for being able to contract a player mm. so I signed I could have signed for Widness, Bradford, Leeds or Wakefield but I chose my hometown club I think I was always going to cho- choose my hometown club and um Made my debut at 19. I would have been 18 at the time, but uh, 1979, and uh, there was a Castleford BBC2 Floodlit Trophy, and I remember going into the game, and I felt what felt like a missile at one point travelling over the top of my head, and that was uh, Malcolm really, I think, trying oh, to yeah. welcome me to the game. <laughs> but I, I must have had enough about me just to duck under that one, but. Yeah, and that was a time where you maybe didn't send all your frontline players because you got league games at the weekend as well. So yeah. it was a it was a good it was an opening for players like myself to start to get a sense of what it was like.
1: Because obviously a floodlit trophy, they were all evenings, weren't they? Yeah, and it was during the winter as well. It was on BBC then, Two. It was BBC. the BBC
2: Two floodlit yeah. trophy. Yeah,
1: and it, it must have been freezing and all. Yeah,
2: it? yeah, was it? But we we I think we started in. Probably around September time and finished in May. The yeah. Challenge Cup final was always like the first weekend in May, and that was the dead set end of the season. That only changed when the Premiership Trophy came in, and that would have been played after the Challenge Cup final. But uh, yeah, it was a it it was a cold, the coldest I ever remember being on a a winter's was around uh, sort of January time, and it was at Halifax away, the old Thrum Hall, yeah. and I can remember the thinking the game would never go ahead and we got there and because the slush had melted on the top of the field down into there used to have a slope down into the bottom right hand corner as you came out and that was just like ice covered with slush so that was okay we could play on that and it was you know there were you could swim in it <laughs> you, you, you you couldn't break the ice underneath but he had slush on top so that was okay you, you'd never get a game on now nice. and uh I can remember two overseas players, one from us and one from Halifax, basically being taken off and put in front of the little gas stoves. Just freezing, they got hypothermic they were hypothermic. It was Quite, coldest I've ever been
0: I quite like the idea of a specific trophy based around the environment so let's play this at night when it's as possible cold coldest it cold can possibly be and see how far we can push the players until they have to be put in front of a heater and, and you know
2: climate climates are changing because I can remember you, you might not play for five weeks because of frost yeah. around you know pre-Christmas post-Christmas but there were periods of time that you would not play for weeks and weeks
0: now that doesn't sound like the, the era. I, I thought they would basically put them on no matter what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Pretty, much, snow. pretty much you didn't have the ground staff, so if you, played a, if you played a game in slushy conditions and then it froze overnight, then you got the ruts and the divots, and at that point they would call a game off. It, and then, Like I say, it could last weeks.
1: So you so you made your debut then? Did you obviously you said you know sort of you would send your fringe players to those games, which you know I imagine that's what you're saying. You, you know that was why you were making your debut. Did you? How long did it take you to cement yourself as a a regular first team player?
2: If I'm being honest, it probably started from that game, and yeah. and then the the season after I played quite a lot of games, and and that was it really. So at the age of nineteen, twenty, I was quite quite established as, with regards to whether it was on the subs bench or in the starting lineup, up um, Ray Batten at the time was the coach of former Leeds Gray and um, the way he played probably lent to him seeing a little bit in me of how I played so he put a lot of faith in me and I played a lot of games. Um, and by 21 I actually left Wakefield and went to Hulkingston Kingston Rover so I was established enough for another team to then come in and buy me by the age of 21.
1: I want to talk about that in a minute but you, obviously, you, it's kind of unheard of these days, especially for a forward, to break into a side at 18 and be an established player by 21, innit? Do you <laughs> think there's anything. Uh, and it used to happen, didn't it, back in the day? But it, why why has that changed? Why aren't we developing forwards uh, as quickly? I mean, you know, there's probably odd odd exception, but. I think lifestyles
2: were different. Mm. I think at the end of the day, if. Uh, I, came, I left school at 16 and uh, I left at Easter, you could leave at Easter then, so I got up one morning and it wasn't because I hope I come across as, uh, as being this person I'm just going to talk about, it <laughs> wasn't because I was unable to do the stuff at school, it's just I hated school, school yeah. was just, to me was a social event where you played sport, it wasn't really about <laughs> lear- learning, I never quite got that bit. And uh, I got up one morning and said to me, oh, I'm leaving school today. And she went, you know, I went, I am. And I left. And I was going to be a professional rugby league player. The big flaw in my plan at that time was there was no professional rugby league players. (laughs) Yeah. So I I learned that very quickly, that you need to work as well. So I did a number of jobs that fit around my career. But you had to grow up really quickly. So you left school. I, I went into an apprenticeship. I finished the apprenticeship, but didn't like the indoor life, so I went doing lanes, roads and sewers. I worked for a brewery, delivering beer. They all tended to be the companies that the chairman run. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> most of the jobs I had revolved around who the chairman was at the time. Um, so, yeah. What, what he needed is a fix. <laughs> I was hoping UEFner would probably get a uh, the chairmanship at Wakefield and get a job with him. Um So, yeah, but I think life was very different. I think life was tougher. I think, you know, you you left school and you had to earn your way. There was no... You didn't go to college and you didn't go to a, a university or there was no scholarships, there was no academy. Life in the academy was was that as you'd expect it to be, you sort of went in as a 16-year-old with under-19s and there was a pecking order, and you can call it bullying if you want to call it that, but there was a pecking order, there was a way of doing things, and you had to learn and fit in, and I think life was harder. It,
1: you know, it is. I mean, you know, nowadays you can't, you know, you have to stay in, main, in in some sort of education until you're 18. You know, that's the law, isn't it? So, you know, I mean, university was a thing that, you did if you were posh or, or yeah. very very. It wasn't for everybody, was school? it? it, no, it and now
2: and now it, yeah. it seems to be for everybody. Yeah. and I'm not sure it, it suits everybody. You've got now.
0: people like me doing it in all sorts. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's
2: the reason why it's not for everybody. <laughs> I'd have hated it. I hated. I hated you know like when people go oh i wish i could go back to my school days i've never thought that No, i've always thought i'd like to go back to when i were 19 20 and 21 yeah there, that's yeah. where i'd go back to yeah i'd yeah. definitely not go back to school yeah but um
1: well you're not stupid are you you know but he, my brother's exactly the same he's more practical he hates school and he's, he's he's got a very successful business now but he hated school and he left when he was 16 but it just doesn't suit a formal no. education. Doesn't. Does not suit a lot of people but and
2: if you choose, if you chose the track of of not learning, then you had to you had to grow up and mm. I think that 's culturally players were very different and The other thing I would say about sort of the rugby league elements then was it wasn 't your job either, mm. so you had to have a job yeah. and you had to go training on an night after your job and mm. You know, at the point where I signed for Old Kingston Rovers, I was 21 years of age and I didn't even have a car. No. So I was like, right, you've just signed for Old KR, how are you getting there? You know, and so then you've got to work out there's nobody going to pick you up and drop you off like mm. they do now. My mum and dad didn't have a car. In fact, my dad had just passed away um, just before I signed for Old KR. So my dad was no longer on the scene. My mum didn't drive. So how were I going to get to Old KR? You, you, yeah. you didn't have this... Um, this rite of passage where your mum and dad are a taxi till you decide they're not going to be a taxi anymore yeah. you had to when i when i played at east moor and lived on luckset i used to have to get two buses to get to training after school so i'd come home grab my bag run back down to the bus stop jump on a bus into wakefield and get a bus from wakefield to east or walk to training from the bus station so i could spend the money on sweets after <laughs> training you know that's how life was yeah no,
0: no it's interesting though because when you speak about that surely that sort of stuff helps you develop as a character and you mentioned now it's sort of you get the luxuries when you join a a professional academy, do you have to try and instil that same type of learning in youth academy players now but in different ways to go and get a job and walk the training type thing?
2: I'd like to think one of the biggest things I impart when we work with academy and scholarship players is that I think it's the, the respect the trust, the honesty, the hard work I think it's the understanding of how fortunate they are and how, but how much work they still need to do. I, I think the values that are brought to the hoodas. Well, I think the values that are brought to every aspect of wherever, I've, where, wherever I've coached or worked are are the life values that I think uh, still stand tall now. I think players are still capable of of exactly what we're talking about that we need to impart and make them understand how hard it is and what what's required. I don't like people who. Leave a plate on a table and walk away and think that it's somebody else's job to pick it up after they've they've done. I don't like to see people throw stuff on the floor, so I'm always quick to pick it up and go. What are you doing? Hmm. You know, so and to me that's respect. Yeah, I can remember being at Jewsbury where. Um, Chili, the kit man there and still the kit man now used to give the players towels after training and I walked into the dressing room and all these players had dropped towels on the floors and Chili were going round trying to pick wet, muddy towels up and so I, basically I told him not to give them out anymore and then when the players come and ask you where the towels are I till you learn to respect the guy who's washing them and picking them up by, by just putting them on the, the, you know, the physio tables in yeah. the dressing room put them on the physio table so he can just come in, pick them up put them in the washer. Why should he have to go around picking them off the floor? I said, you'll get them back when I think you understand that. Mm-hmm. So just little simple takeaways. Then they realise they've got to bring their own towel and wash their own towel and they start to understand and value other people. There's nobody, there's nobody with any, within any organisation or structure more important than the next person because we've all, we're all contributing. You know, yourselves here today, you're contributing towards the success of the club. And it's we we need to learn to understand and respect that.
0: Did you think it can be hard for players who are fast tracked through, who maybe miss that and are thrown straight into a you know the, the first team sort of setup?
2: I think it is, and I think that's why welfare is such a strong thing now. Mm. I think player welfare is massive. We've we've been very fortunate that we've got we had Steve Hardesty at the club uh, who shared my ethos and and. Um, the things that I wanted to implement and install, he believed in just as strongly as I did. So anybody who knows over the last eight years know that I've worked very as close to Steve as anybody else at the club to make sure that not only did we try to instill the values, but we also tried to unpin them and underpin them and support them.
0: One of the other things I wanted to speak about, going back to your career, is your, your progression there. Because you, you went from, like you said, playing in your back garden, the 3v3, to... eventually playing international rugby with England. And it was only one cap at the time. But how did you feel having known you made that progression to that point?
2: Well, to to be selected for your country is an incredible honour. I'd just come back from Australia, so I'd played in Australia like... I was the first English player to play in the NRL after the ban between the two countries. There was a bit of a talent drain going on and players were going from England to Australia, believe it or not, and we felt that was going to improve the Australian game. It's never been borne out, has it, that one? but yeah so I played in Australia and I came back now there'd been a tour that year so Great Britain had toured and and I was very close to the lads who were on tour but when I came back I got selected for England and that was just I was so proud of that moment you know even now you, you can feel the emotion about you know representing your country when you set out you know i can remember if somebody had said to me what's your ambition i would have said to play for great britain or england i wouldn't have said maybe to play for wakefield or huddersfield mm-hmm. my first port of call would have been great britain or england <laughs> and that that came about do you but,
1: think that goal setting is important because you know it's sort of where, where, where you know as, as a young person where do you set your goal do you go i want to play for great britain and that's it i'm not going to stop until i get there or, or is it i want to play for the academy"? Oh they want to play a first team. I did
2: um I did a presentation to the freshers at Leeds Carnegie, their sports um freshers. And really what I spoke to them about was exactly what we're talking about today was leaving school, no professional team family of six, sharing a, a a triple bed, a double bed with three brothers. So when you got up on a morning, you didn't know wet the bed. You, you knew you were wet. First and,
1: up, best dressed. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing.
2: But I went through some pictures of, of royal family and um, Nicolas Cage and a yacht and Sydney Harbour. And these were all experiences that tied together at the end of it. It made sense. I, I can't explain it all now, but... You know, I sailed on a, a yacht in Sydney Harbour in two thousand and eight and Nicholas Cage had hired the yacht prior to Steve O'Connor who was the witness chairman. Mm. So and I can remember standing on this yacht and thinking, how does a lad from Luxay end up on a luxury yacht? with four staff bringing me beers and beer and canapes and uh, how does that happen well I I think you commit you have a vision you have a dream so when I left school as I said I wanted to be a professional rugby league player but there was no professional rugby league players but I never stopped believing that's what I would become and I guess that's goal setting and having a vision and so I always pursued that I would be a rugby league player Mm.
1: of of whatever mantle that would make so we've got we've got Nineteen to twenty one year old Andy Kelly, loving life, as you said before, you know, if I could go back to you know, oh, the, nineteen I was, to twenty one the glory I was harvesting days. the mullet, the palm tash was starting <laughs> to come.
2: I was a proper nineteen uh, eighties magnum, I'll tell and you. you were
1: probably, you know, man about town in Wake, and the move to OKR okay, came about. How did that happen and what happened? And obviously you said you didn't have a car, what what happened? Well, really
2: there? it it was starting to get round to the point where my first contractual period was over, which was from my 18th birthday through to my 21st. So the club sort of, I'll say it was a bit of a token gesture because I know what happened after, but they basically started to talk to me about staying at Wakefield, but then made it quite evident once they weren't actually going to meet me with any kind of financial uh, agreement that they had to sell me so i was probably their most saleable asset and they'd already agreed a deal what they wanted me to do was ask for a move and i did so i was really naive you didn't have managers and agents and like i said to you my dad had just passed away and so i was pretty much managing myself at that point taking bits of advice off players and uh, i thought wakefield manipulated me into a position where i didn't get any of the transfer fee but I were able to negotiate with Hull Kingston and uh, a little bit with Wakefield to make sure that I did get some recompense. But I think it was driven by the fact that Wakefield needed to sell one of their assets and I was the one that they were most interested in. I'd broken my arm that year, so I'm, November that year, um, it was my 21st birthday to the day, I broke my arm playing the first few minutes of the game and I hadn't played for a large chunk of the season and one of the remaining games uh, of the season that I played in was Hull Kingston Rovers and I got man of the match in that game and that might have just pushed them a little bit along the way of yeah. oh, we like him, yeah we do like him, let's go get him mm-hmm. so Hull KR were dead set, they wanted me to go Wakefield were dead set, they had to sell me and, and really I was just the the one that finally agreed to it <laughs> all. Yeah, so that's how that came about Um it was a, it was a the biggest cash transfer for a forward in this country with it didn't involve any player exchanges, so
1: yeah that, that made how does that happen i mean has that left a bad taste in your mouth did it le- did it leave a bit of bitterness you know you'd committed to your hometown club after you had plenty of offers and then obviously you've done your bit and they wouldn't you know they want you out of the door and they're not prepared to give you any i never bit, felt
2: I never felt bitter about it i never ever felt. Uh, resentful about what they'd done or how it came about Mm. and I was quite ready to make the move Uh, Mm. the world was a much bigger place then, you know, the the traffic systems, the the cars you know, the planes, trains and automobiles weren't the same, there weren't as many but if it had signed for Bradford it would have seemed a long way away for a bloke without a car (laughs) so to sign for Holland, I don't know But
1: Eastmore's a long way to go two buses two buses
2: (laughs) um, But no, I never felt bitter about it and and some people suggested that... I think supporters don't have all the information and some people suggested I should have stayed. It's Mm -hmm. too early for him to go. But I went to Hull Kingston um, and started in the 1981-82 season and uh, to be fair there were some very golden years that followed so it made it easier I was going to say,
1: was that your best would you say that that was sort of, you know, the best parts of your career because you got to a Challenge Cup final, didn't uh, you, at that point
2: it, I played in I didn't win them all and, but, I, you get, you know, the, we played John Player finals uh, Premiership finals we played a Challenge Cup final that we lost to Castleford, that was a 15-14 Back-to-back um, yeah. back winner Pardon?
0: Back-to-back back winner
2: Back-to-back championships, so that was like winning, I guess, Super League two years running. And yeah. it would only ever been done by Bradford, I think, before then. I, I, I might be wrong, and Widness may have done it, but I've, I'm of the belief that only Bradford had won back-to-back championships at that time. Roger Millward was a fantastic coach, made us work extremely hard on our condition, but believed in the talent of the side. So we once asked him, why haven't we had any ball pre-season? And we were doing... We were doing ten mile road runs, you know, as a rugby team. We, if you did that now, they'd all, they all want to leave the day after, wouldn't they? You're
1: running too much. Yeah. That, up, so, so we,
2: we went from like one mile interval running to three mile to five mile to ten mile and. Mm old roger used to jump on his push bike to make sure you weren't taking shortcuts and he'd have his woodbine going as he were riding past year <laughs> and, but and them different times but we we were exceptionally good and, and that was a period of time where pl- the challenge cup final i played over in australia i played in for england i played for yorkshire under peter fox god rest his soul it was, it was recently passed and uh I have to say that playing for the country of Yorkshire felt bigger as an occasion <laughs> than playing for England, I have to be honest, but that was because of Peter Fox, he made it such a big occasion, mm. I can remember the phone call, I was playing second row at the time, and uh, we even had one of those budgie phones that you on the wall, you know, like a wall phone with a long cord, because yeah, yeah. I was right into modcoms yeah. then, <laughs> and uh, the phone rang and I picked the phone up and it says, Peter Fox, I'd like you... I'd like you to play for Yorkshire, um, over at Headingley. And he said, But I'm gonna ask you to play prop. And I went, Okay. I said, if you'd have said fullback, I'm still coming <laughs> and I'll set off now. And he went, That's all I needed to hear. And he proceeded to make it such a massive occasion. Yeah. The country of Yorkshire, it was just it was just like the the best like representative
1: game I'd played in. I don't know if we're gonna have enough time to sort of talk <laughs> about your time. Well in do it again. I mean, do we do need to do one. a third episode, but what what was it like it, you were obviously getting paid so there was you know there yeah. was somebody so you, you technically were a professional but you were still working full-time weren't you and it's it, it's hard to imagine now because the environment that we work in and we know yeah. what happens and we know how much professional sport costs it's hard to think that only you know sort of 35 years ago that you know you, you were working five days a week well what would you be training two nights a week three nights four three nights, nights. nights three, three
2: yeah. nights and, and play of the weekend I, I, yeah. you know I, I I was a hod carrier so I was I was working with bricklayers I was carrying the hod and mm-hmm. loading up and mixing mortar and even when I went to Australia I had to take four months off work you know and agree with the lads that, that my job would still be there when I got back yeah and, so you know, you say the money's about. I left Australia owing them hundred and fifty dollars, <laughs> because I'd paid for Helen's airfare to come over. Yeah, and, you know, so it weren't it weren't, it weren't it weren't great in terms of earning money. Yeah. It wasn't like when the NRL and ARL went to war and money was abound for everybody. Yeah, um, I borrowed the money off John Dorey so I could get my registration released and play again, or oh, yeah. back in England, but. Different times, but it was so brilliant, you know, to jump on an aeroplane and, and go to Australia at the age 24. It was unbelievable, it was just fantastic. Yeah. and Brian Smith was the coach when I got there. Yeah, uh, oh, obviously, I didn't, know,
1: I didn't know him there, but yeah, different kettle of fish to what I'd been used to. They talk about sort of the Brian Smith coaching school, don't they? That a lot of the good modern day coaches have all kind of worked under Brian yeah. Smith.
2: Well as a player at that time, and bear in mind he was in his infancy, yeah. um, he barely spoke to me, <laughs> I barely got a word out of him, yeah. and it, it would, it, his method I guess was for me to work it out, yeah. and it took me a long time to work it out, mm. and I finally did get a start in the first team off the bench, but it took me a, a great number of weeks, yeah. I was really grateful to a guy called Harry Bryant, who was the reserve team coach then. Not many would know him, but he came when Ian Millward was the coach of St Helens. When Ian Millward first came over, Harry Bright, Harry Bright came over almost as like a bit of a football advisor for him as well at one time. But mm-hmm. he, was a, he was a really good bloke and uh, helped me no end with trying to acclimatize. My game was very different to the Australian game, and it took me a long time to work that out.
0: Yeah. Speaking of going to Australia, last time you were on the podcast, you you spoke about a couple of players in the youth team because at that time we were having to promote very quickly into the first team and you mentioned the two senior twins and how they're going to be future stars and they're doing pretty well now and the other player you mentioned was Dom Young who at that point hadn't even, I think, made that many appearances for the reserve grade and him himself has gone over now to, to Newcastle in, uh, in Australia so it's it must be... You must be glad that you are able to uh, pick out and sort of see the talent in the, the youth players that are developing underneath you. I think
2: there's a whole host of people that do that job as well. You know, Sean Fallon, who I'm never slow to mention, yeah. he, um, he's out there every week, and he's he's looking at um, a much younger age than me. I, I I reckon I don't see what he sees sometimes. There's the obvious ones, which most clubs would recognise, but Sean's been doing that for a lot of years. I think once you get him into scholarship and academy, you can start to you can start to see what you need to nurture and develop, and you see players that maybe weren't that fancied when they first came in, but the the escalation and, and levels of improvement are, are so good that then they, they, they become obviously almost like he's destined to make a super league player. And it it's such a tough again for the young kids. It's such a tough system because it's a filter system. So you start with forty kids and you end up with five. It's yeah. It's mm. so a lot of attrition to cope with there. Mm.
0: Did, with someone like Dom, I don't know what your sort of involvement would be through the academy at that point, but when they get a move potentially after he made a few starts the Giants to Australia, do you ever get to sort of give your own advice on the move yourself? You know, it's all it's other people who sort of fill in that for you.
2: Well, it, for some players, and I won't say it's Dom, but you, you have to work really hard on a pers- on a business level to try and keep them at the club. Mm. And whether you think... That's right for them or not, sometimes. But you need, you know, you've nurtured them for the club, um, and when they go to Australia, you don't get a bean for them. You don't, There's no recompense, so mm. they walk through the door free. But once the decision were made, um, I've got no qualms about wanting those players to succeed. Mm. Um, that's my job, you know. And I, I've done a, a podcast recently for another club based on my career, and they said to me, "Why do I do it?" And I do it so I can. I want to give back to other players. We're talking about Challenge Cup finals and internationals. and I want other players to enjoy that. I want the young players to have a, a taste of what I enjoyed as a player. And that's my driving force. That's what keeps me going. That's why I never lose the enthusiasm for the game when we talk about the other jobs that I've done. I'm enthusiastic because I want people to sample what I've sampled because it's a fantastic game and it's just as it's got some heartbreaking moments, it's got some fantastic rewards as well.
1: What was your biggest heartbreaking moment in the game?
2: <sighs> Losing at Wembley was massive, yeah, um, but also a privilege. Yeah, you know, you, you keep very. I don't like players who who don't want to keep the medal. You know. In the semi-final against Leeds, Jeff Grayson played one of the oldest players that's played the game in terms of the years that he played, and it was his last shot at playing at Wembley. He never played at Wembley, and and to me, I know he played for Leeds. He didn't play for Hulkingston Rovers, but for me to throw my loser's medal away would be disrespecting him. Yeah, that's how I see it. Yeah, there's a connectivity mm. to players, and uh, so, so I played at Wembley. I played at the old Wembley. I I walked up there. The tunnel I heard abide with me and I shook hands with royalty and I stared at the opposition and I played in a, a game with eighty four thousand people there. How can that be such a bad thing? You yeah. know just There was experience. only ever gonna be one winner.
1: Yeah. How long does that heartbreak last? You know, when all your life When do you start to get philosophical about it and go, you know what, that was just it when you know when you when, when you, you stood there and, and you were staring out at the opposition or when you were coming out, were you thinking at the time, this is one of the greatest moments of my life? Yeah. Or were you thinking, I want to smash my opposite number? I would, both, I suppose. Both.
2: both. The, the, everything's in there. There were some players that were telling each other that, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I remember Gavin Miller, who was never short of a word, yeah. looking across the line and picking out the Australians and, I don't know what... uh, I think it was the Duchess of Kent that we were presented to her, but I don't know what she thought to some of the languages. (laughs) She may use it herself. I don't know. It might be part of that. Uh, But certainly there's there's people doing different things. I, I just remember that we were sat in the dressing room And actually, it was the old Wembley, so it was at the bottom end of the field, and it sloped up, so when you were actually stood at the tunnel ready to come out, you couldn't see the crowd. But we are in the dressing room, and there was TVs in the dressing room, and a concierge who hung your stuff up, put your stuff up. I can remember everybody being fairly relaxed, and and almost like a normal game day, until the strains of Abide With Me started, and then you could see everybody go white and cold, and like studs were clicking, and you just knew then it were on and uh, you walked up the tunnel and as you as you walked up the tunnel the, by nature of the slope the people at the far end see you first and the people that are looking over the side but the yeah. people at the far end on block and you just hear this cacophony of noise that just comes round the stadium yeah it's just this massive roar and honestly it, it's it's there's no there's no other there's no other occasion like it that's ever got anywhere close to that Um so and then you come in out in the sunshine and you walk, obviously half the length of the field and line up.
1: So, would you say your heartbreaking moment, most heartbreaking moment, was was also one of your yeah. finest? Yeah,
2: yeah, you could say that. You know, we we lost yeah. with the very one of the very last kicks of the game. We got close to winning. I don't think we deserved to win on the day. I thought Castleford probably did deserve to win, and and whether by a narrower or a bigger margin. But yeah, the, there's other occasions. The games, the games, tough on you at times. There's, there's been other occasions and. Times where personal ekes into business mm-hmm. and people make decisions about you that are not right. Um, you know, as a coach, Wakefield was my club and we, got, we, we won a grand final from the division below. So we won the league leaders and then we went on to win the grand final. We were promoted to Super League. I coached a full year in Super League when everybody said we wouldn't win a game and we'd go straight back down, and we didn't. But the year after, within eight games, I were already getting... And I'm going to use the word shafted. I were already getting shafted. um, (laughs) In respect of... There were things that were going on behind the scenes that weren't of my doing, but I Mm. became a little bit of a patsy for them. Yeah.
0: Now, I think... Because we are running out of time quite quickly. We have to speak about the Giants at the moment, (laughs) obviously. Um, Season's started again Back up and running Very much into the thick of it already Off the back of a loss Going into to Salford What would be your uh, As a player's perspective What would be your Sort of mentality at the moment you Knowing it's early days still And you're still You know A lot of potential to fill in I think
2: It's hard for me to talk as a player But I can talk to you as a As a member of Stafford has been eight years I've never been as excited about a season For a long time There's mm-hmm. There's some of the work that um, Ian Watson's done with his staff, with the players, with the with the the changing over of the guard, if you like, some players going out, some new players coming in. It's a very good squad, and and when I talk about very good squad, I'm not talking about it's the most talented squad I've ever seen. It's a, it's a group of players and the chemistry feels right. Mm. There's a there's a conjoined attitude. There's a congruence about them that's right, and I think they've all got a vision of where we're going. Um, so I'm really sort of optimistic about this season I think we've got off to a great start we lost to Wigan uh, on Thursday Thursday don't matter when you get older (laughs) Um, but I've seen us do worse than that when we've gone to Wigan I've seen a couple of occasions where I thought we didn't even want to get on the bus let alone get off it so I was quite encouraged by the performance at Wigan on uh, Thursday when I spoke with Matty P afterwards he agreed with what I was saying about the game
0: A a lot of the feeling generally, I think, is that people don't it didn't feel like a loss coming away from it. Almost, yeah, it, it was a loss, and it's it's not great to not come away with the points, but it it felt as if there was enough in there, yeah, to have it, it felt
2: like a loss, cam. <laughs> it Felt like a loss. I know what you're saying, so I'm going to agree with you as well. But there was a lot of positives to take from mm. it, and and I think that's what you're alluding the, to. The,
0: the, the players seem to suggest that they gave it away rather than it yeah. was won by yeah. Wigan. Which, yeah, you know, we wanted to go there and show that that's the level you want to be at, which I think they did. Yeah. So it's, I think, like you say, it is still a loss, and it very much hurts that you don't come away with points. But I think no one is disheartened by the performance. No. I,
2: I think it's, I think it's really key what you're saying. I think there were, you can come away from some grounds and you just go, I don't know where we go from there. That no,
1: was dreadful. Yeah. And
2: you don't know where we go from there because that was awful. We just looked like we never wanted to play or. I really feel that there's some real key people in that dressing room at the moment who keep us on course. Ian's obviously one of the key protagonists of that, but he's got a really strong playing group now. So they would see the positives, but being disappointed is also a positive, Mm -hmm. you know. So that's why I highlight it was a loss because that's how the players felt, but they're also very, very aware of it was a good performance um, and without Tio and without um, Danny Levi which would that have bridged uh, was it a 10 point gap in the end yeah 22-12 yeah, yeah. so would that have bridged uh, it would have got us closer I'm sure it would because mm. we had enough possession I, I just think Danny Levi's shown enough to say that we would go forward and I think the the approach play, the foresight and the transitional kicks of Theo Farge would have probably held our field position and got more out of it. So, yeah, I think there's enough in there for us to be really optimistic.
0: Now, last time you came on the podcast, uh, it was just before we played a certain game at Magic Weekend against Hull FC, which we did quite well in, if I remember. I can't remember the exact score, but it was in the 40s, 50s hmm. that we uh, beat them. So hopefully you're a good luck charm. Um, Another. <laughs> My little lucky <look> <laughs> <jam. Yeah>. chair. <laughs> Just starts a little. <laughs> no no pressure, but do you think we'll win?
2: <laughs> Against Salford, I believe we've got more than enough capability to win the game. Uh, T.O. will be back in the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be a couple of. I'm sure Ian will make whether the cosmetic or necessarily, necessary changes to the team uh, where he feels what best suits that game. Salford have done pretty well against us since Ian came to the club and obviously that's his, his previous club but I really feel strongly that Ian will get something more positive from this one yeah. so well, if, if I'm saying do I think we'll win, yeah I do
0: I know Luke Yates was very much looking forward to it because he, he likes the uh,
1: cold reception he gets from the yeah. Salford fans Yeah. <laughs> how can you not like that sort of stuff <laughs> when you're a player you know, if that, if that sort of stuff drags you down as a player, I think you might as well pack in. You need to use all sorts of things to get you up for the game, don't yeah, you?
2: Yeah, 100%. I, when I left Hulkingston Rovers and I went back to Wakefield, I played in a game at the old Boulevard and. Uh, I scored the winning try with moments to go. It was locked at 10-all and I took an interception and went under the post and I took a bow at their threatening stand, you know, <laughs> who'd give me pelters the whole game for being a Rovers reject. So I went and took a bow, but I'll tell you what, I want first person back in dressing room, so <laughs> I will I want hanging around. But you, you thrive on that, you do thrive. As much as you might think you're getting negative feedback from a crowd, you thrive on it you actually turn it on it's head a little bit well it's like
0: we mentioned with the Covid you, you miss the home fans supporting you but I bet you equally miss the away fans yeah, it's
2: a banter I remember sitting with uh, Stoney who used to make me take the radio and sit in front of the at the back of the stick so I could feed back from the back of the defence and when you sat in front of 1,500 2,000 Hull fans and they know you're there with a the microphone and you, you get some pelters there as well <laughs> but it's good it's good banter and you know why do some of us oldies keep going well we like we still like competing we still like challenges and we still like doing what we do
0: now obviously we against Salford we're trying to put on the same sort of atmosphere as we did
1: absolutely yeah I mean I I mean I just want to say thanks to any fans out there that are listening that came down early to the game Um, the first home game what I looked at the weather and I thought, we've put all this on and there's going to be nobody here. Well, I walked outside. It was packed outside the front. The food festival was booming. The Legends Bar, if you're an HGSA member, was absolutely packed. Uh, obviously, there was half-price beer in there for for legends uh, for HGSA, hgsa members, which we're going to do uh, this weekend as well, as well as the vouchers in the paper for the delivery food festival. It was fantastic. So, if you came down uh, to that game, given the weather, good on you. And all I can say is, we're repeating it all um you know for the people that couldn't make it down we understand that perhaps you couldn't make it down or you know perhaps but you were snowed in or whatever so we're repeating it all we're repeating it all don't forget to get your examiner on wednesday you've got a five pound free voucher for the food festival um which also covers the bar so you can get a free beer a free burger whatever it is We've got uh, entertainment on brilliant singer and, uh, and guitarist called Murphy James playing out outside the front of the stadium in the fun zone where we've got the post up, cheerleaders face painting. We've got a DJ again in the food festival in the marquee. It is going to be fantastic, Cameron. So all I can say is get yourselves down there. Don't forget to exchange your free vouchers. If you're a seasoned card holder and you've got your three free vouchers in the, um, in the Christmas card, um, pass them on to your friends bring your neighbours bring your friends bring somebody else's friend bring your husband bring somebody else's husband i don't care <laughs> just bring anybody come to the game sunday the 6th of march against Salford Red Devils down here 3 o'clock see you there
2: can I can i just back up that and just say yeah. it made a difference to the players mm. the support has been in the ground and it it's one of the most pivotal seasons not just for the game but for huddersfield giants in terms of We've, we're on various media, uh, like TV media. If we can't speak positively about the experience people had on that particular evening, given the weather was atrocious, and we, I really feared for all the hard work that everybody had put in to get us to that point, but it created a great atmosphere. Please, please, please talk about the enjoyable experience. Don't talk in negatives, because it was a fantastic event and a lot of hard work went into it.
0: I can't back that up enough mm, absolutely and hopefully it'll be uh, hope, uh, hopefully the weather's not like it is now but ideally better weather of the same sort of stuff people get backing down again and it's uh, I think we can wrap it up now so thank you very much Andy for joining us it's been a pleasure hearing about your uh, career again and your new job
2: Yeah, I look, for, I look forward to the next three so we can get to the end of this <laughs>
1: <laughs> which part have we discussed yet you coaching Korea. There's there's
2: all sorts in there. There's lots of things there. <laughs> yeah, we've never even mentioned been, yeah. Lambrettas yet.
0: <laughs> I think that will do it. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening. We'll be back again uh, next time.